Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Alexander, philosopher and author, and they discuss how consumer attention has become society's new currency, why the moderators of any social network need to be highly qualified and highly paid, and why it's important to constantly expose yourself to different views and challenge your beliefs. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. And so your transition from music to this YouTube universe, that got you involved with the concept of like big tech censorship? No, it was earlier than that. This is this is more like, this is the last five to 10 years we're talking about where the format has changed. I was in television for many years before that. I did all the big shows like, you know, Swedish Idol, <laughs> Sweden's Got Talent, TV shows like that. Because obviously I was in the music industry for 25 years, I had four different bands. They were internationally successful. I also produced records that were huge hits in the States. So I had a great success. I was very, very lucky. But what happened was that when I was working with music in the late 1990s, I discovered that the internet was a fascinating phenomenon itself. And I always dreamed about maybe one day becoming a philosopher or write a book. And it turns out that I'm working on my sixth and my seventh books at the moment that I become an established international philosopher. So it's a gradual shift. Uh, I call it the secondary and the primary archetype. It turned out that my secondary archetype was a music producer and a songwriter. And my primary archetype was to become a philosopher one day. And again, I was lucky. I had great mentors. I was invested in early. I had the right connections. So when my first book was published 22 years ago, another journey started in my life. And that's the journey of being a philosopher. And of course, because I came from a technological revolution in music, I came from the revolution where we moved from acoustic to electronic. I was one of the pioneering producers who fired the musicians, got myself computers and technicians and started making music in a whole new way in Scandinavia in the late 1980s. And because I knew what it meant and how technology could change your life forever, I got interested in technology and it turned out very few philosophers had actually dealt with the relationship between human beings and technology. And I was completely, you know, that's my thing. That's what I'm going to do. I practiced it. I've learned it through a trade for 25 years. I can now start expressing my own ideas in the relationship between human beings and technology. And that's what I do. What? Who are your peers as far as like modern day philosophers in this technology space? Well, it's both the timeless aspect of philosophy and, and my two huge heroes are Hegel and Nietzsche. They were both Germans, they were in the 19th century. And basically they formulated what we call the modern society, but, but they're gold mines. There's much more to them than that. And you could always try to imagine what would Hegel have said? What would Nietzsche have said? You know, what would Freud have said? You know, even what would Marx have said about something when you study it? So you can both go to the timeless world of philosophy and basically try to think like those guys thought. But then there are the guys who are much closer in time to us. And, and huge inspiration for me was Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian cyberneticist and, and theorist on media and his media theories. And he also had this sort of what's called an Aristotelian approach. Like you, Aristotle always told Plato, you can have your great ideas in your head, but I'm working in the real world where people are connected with things. So. I like this idea of working with contextuality. Like, uh, what is your environment? Where are you located? What kind of machines do you use? How does a laptop screen affect you? 
How does smartphone communication affect you? How does data storage and data processing affect you and your life? All those things are the ones that fascinate me. I think human beings are usually pretty similar over time. We haven't changed much in the last 5,000 years or so. You know, We still sleep with the wrong person, have terrible babies, basically. But, but, uh, but our technological environment is actually what is different over time. And, and our entire concept of civilization is built on technology. Most of all, on information and communication technology, all of civilization always were. So the, the, um, the arrival of the internet only makes it even more abundantly clear to us that we need to understand the environments in which we're located to understand ourselves. And here many Americans like Marshall McLuhan contributed a lot to that research. And they were great inspirations for me when I got started. So <clears throat> there's a lot to unpack there, but I wanna, the way I found you was I, I had my team, I said, look, we were trying to cover this topic of big tech censorship, right? Because there's a lot of tough questions there, a lot of philosophical, the questions often lead to more like philosophical conversations, right? Like, should it be 100% open and free? The moment it's not 100% open and free, there's some arbiters of like, who what decides what it is? Who are those people? Are they, you know, all of these questions come up. And I was trying to have these conversations. I found out real quick, I can't have them with like people who are Fortune 500 executives that work at big tech companies because that's not exactly the conversations that you know they want to have. Um, and then I've, I talked to a couple other people who we weren't able to like necessarily air the interviews because they just went extremely political. The con like every question I asked, it ended in a political concept. And I just was like, I'm, there's so much division right now. I'm trying, I'm focused personally on like, where's the parts that we agree on and like, how can we be objective and like, think about things rationally versus like championing one side over another. So I've, I've struggled. That's what I'm trying to get across to you. You know, I've struggled trying to get this topic of big tech censorship covered. And my team approached me, they said, we've, we've got this guy, Alexander, we think he might be able to do it. And so I was like, okay, cool. So I'm going to give you like a blanket question here. And I'm just curious, like, what are your general thoughts on what's happening today with like big tech censorship? I always go to the user. I always go to the customer straight away. Any company I work with, uh, any kind of business I work with, I go straight to the customer, the user. And we're all customers and we're all users. So for example, somebody wants to send a newsletter from a corporation. I look through the newsletter. I discover it's just full of cliches and bombastic statements. And I would throw it in the spam box if I got it. So I just asked them, if you weren't working for this company and you got this newsletter from somebody else, what would you do with it? And they go pale. I, I throw it in the spam box. And then I just say, well, what do you think other people will do? <laughs> and I said, rip it apart, throw it away. You can't communicate that way any longer, you know? So you gotta figure out other ways to communicate if you can communicate at all. You must humbly accept that you might not be in a position where it's even possible for you to communicate. You might have to work on your act. You might have to work on your product or your service much more before it's actually ready to be communicated so that people gladly, willingly spread information about it. So it's always good to go back to yourself. So for example, we hear the question about, I've got my data. And we're trained to think about ourselves as individuals. Like, it's my data, I own it. Well, data doesn't operate that way. Data is not like money. Data does not lose its value if it's distributed. It can be shared. It can be shared to many people. So a better approach to think, so you got your data, and say you could control it, 
And there was just one guy in the room, maybe Xi Jinping of communist China, right? Because the Chinese Communist Party steal all the information in all computers in China and store it in a central Communist Party computer. Now, we don't want that, do we? No, we don't. Moralistically, maybe it's wrong, but more than anything, it's not resilient. Because once you get allow one guy at the top to run everything, then we know what dictators are like. You know, you have a virus spreading in the community. It doesn't matter where it started. But the dictator's not going to be told until six or seven months into the whole process because nobody dares to tell him the truth. And then he starts acting on it. And then you get a worldwide pandemic. That's a perfect example. The problem with China was not whether we started in a lab or in, in a meat market or whatever, a wet market. The problem was that the dictator of China didn't know until six or seven months after the whole pandemic got started. And that's the problem with dictatorship and tyranny. The problem is nobody wants to talk to the guy to talk. We got Putin at the moment. Putin clearly doesn't know in Russia what's going on in Ukraine. He's wildly guessing. He's been told tons of stuff about his army. And it turns out his entire army is built on corrupt steel. Corrupt steel, right? Like the steel is not the steel that's supposed to be in the tanks. And he's losing a war in the Ukraine because of it. That, to me, speaks volumes about why power concentration is so dangerous. And our sort of aggressive reaction against big tech when they don't get this is because of this. Because the system itself would not be resilient if these guys ruled, ruled roast, you know. So the, the trick is this. If you give your information to just one guy, you won't let him have it. But if you can give your information to, say, five guys that are competing with each other to provide you with great services, that's a whole different story. And I think the trick here is to go back to the U.S. Constitution. As a philosopher, I'm endlessly fascinated with the principle of power sharing, because if you have at least three different powers that keep each other into checks and balances, that's a much more stable system over time than just having one little stalling guy at the top. And the same thing goes for the corporate world. The corporate world goes corrupt, it becomes lazy, it makes its money when it becomes a monopoly. We have no use for that as customers and users, but we have every use in the world for providing the data, keeping the data open, giving the data to the tech companies to, so the tech companies can create great services for all of us. That's a whole different ballgame. I knew if I talked to like a philosopher, my mind would run. <laughs> I think about this stuff a lot and you're giving me a lot of um, unique content, I guess. Like I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot of um, your examples and references are not things that are, I've heard regurgitated a lot. So I'm sort of, if, if I'm paused a little bit, it's because I'm taking in a lot of new information. We can go back to the censorship question because it follows from this. It's just like when you move into the customer user mode and you stay there, then you don't want censorship, of course. Right? but do you want information that's valid to you? And the trick for that is called algorithms. And, and the problem with the algorithms at the moment is that they were actually better 15 years ago than they are now. Say Google in 2008, their algorithms were basically clean, as we call them now. They were free and open, meaning that they reflected you as the user. So say, you're putting yourself in front of a laptop or a smartphone and you search. We all search these days. We use the algorithms to search because otherwise the internet would be nothing but a huge chaos. But the algorithms provide us with order. So they tip us, go here, go there. This is usually the global algorithm, meaning you look for a restaurant, this is the best restaurant in the world for you. Then there's a local algorithm. It says, this is the best restaurant for you where you live or where you're based at the moment. Do you want us to book a table, right? That's fantastic. The algorithms are changing the world, but the algorithms are under attack. 
and this is what's interesting about paradigms and paradigm shifts, is that the algorithm comes from a whole new age. It comes from digital. But of course, the old system, what we call the industrial capitalist society in the past, that had politics at the center, it had industry at the center, and academia at the center. These were the three major centers that kept the industrial capitalist society stable. And they were brilliant at doing that before the internet arrived. But of course, they're all under threat. Politics is under threat. It's really messy at the moment. Old industries are under threat because their old advertising methods don't work any longer. They can pay their way to your attention. You want something more than that. And academia is, of course, in a huge crisis because academia stopped producing really good science like decades ago. And it's basically now just a career path for losers, to be honest about it. So the, the, these institutions then attack the algorithm. And we call that the corruption of money. The capitalists will throw money at their problem. They will think that if we scream louder and bombard you with more advertising, somehow you're going to listen to us. And we have now a science that proves that if, you, if an ad interrupts on YouTube, you get irritated with the brand you're seeing. And 995 mm -hmm. out of 1,000 times, you have a negative impression of the brand that just interrupted your communication. That's how terrible ads are, according to us now. We hate it. We call it spam. But still... Oh, yeah. Old industry can know nothing else but to throw money at the problem and put even more advertising in front of us as if that would help them. They're desperate well, can I share to get our something attention. with you? Yeah, sure, sure. Point? Go ahead. Yeah. So I started this podcast five years ago, 500 episodes ago, right? And we were like two years into it or so, 200 episodes in. And um, we were talking about like getting more and more requests for people to be advertisers and sponsor the show, right? But when I had gone around and talked to people, just you know, randomly at the mall, we would run into my wife's friends or something. I'd ask them, "Hey, do you listen to podcasts?" And if they do, I'd, you know, I'd say, "Oh, what's your favorite podcast?" And I heard just a, I picked up on a pattern. You know, you talk to a bunch of people who aren't connected, and you hear them say the same thing. Customers and, and users, exactly the yeah, right customers thing to do. And yes, users. yes, yes, exactly. Yes. So what they were saying was something along the lines of, "Oh, I love this podcast about X." Um, but I stopped and it got really popular and I, I kind of stopped listening to it when it got ads because it got really popular then people put ads on it. So I made an early decision for the show and I was like, I'm never going to put ads on it. And then when sponsors came along, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to put ads, but like you can pay to come on and we'll do deliverables and like we'll promote the episode through paid advertising. So it'll get more exposure than the, just the normal episodes. And we put together these sponsorship packages and people told me like I was crazy for a while. Um, and then you know, we're crushing it now. We have 11 employees. It's a amazing business for us. And we don't run one mid-roll, pre-roll, post-roll ad in the history of our business. And uh, I talked to the competitors that we have, you know, because we're all kind of like friends in the industry and we make 10 to 20 times the revenue they do. Write a book about it and you're going to make millions of dollars, right? <laughs> because advertising is in crisis. This is exactly the news they're looking for. Has anybody provided us with the model that it's customer user friendly? But never, ever compromise on the customer user experience. Always return to them. If they get the slightest bit irritated, back off. You've gone way too far. It's a bit like, you know, trying to seduce somebody on a date, you know, you yeah. are allowed to be a bit, bit straightforward, right? You are allowed to do that. People respect you for trying out. They know that you need to make money to have a business. They need to, you know, to pay, you know, the, the, you guys that are employed. You know, you need to make a profit. They, they know all those things. They respect that. But if you get, if they get ads in their face constantly all the time, they just get sick of it. And that's what we call the corruption of money. And it infiltrates the algorithms. Then it's called search optimization. 
And I tell you what, I hate search optimization. Anybody does when you start looking at it. Because search optimization is like, somebody didn't get that high in the algorithm because their product wasn't that good. So they're trying to cheat their way upwards by employing people who manipulate, manipulate the algorithm to get to the top of it. Now, Google and these guys are aware of this problem because it actually cuts into their profits. It makes their search algorithms worse. So Google employ a lot of people to try to find out who's trying to sneak their way up the algorithm. That's the only natural thing that happens. But companies are too naive to realize that. They spend tons of money in search optimization, which I've warned them about for years, and they lose the money and they fall in the algorithms, of course, because they get punished because they're cheaters as they should be. Any old woman running a bazaar in Persia 3,000 years ago could have taught you this. Don't cheat when you trade, right? Then you have the problem, the next problem with the algorithms today is the manipulation of politics. And this is why we have woke and, and stuff like that going on at the moment, because politicians want to infiltrate. They want to get into, into our heads, right, and manipulate us. And they think the algorithms are the key and the algorithms are designed, like if they were designed by some evil guy who was sitting there trying to go into your brains. And politicians are really, really into this idea to actually manipulate your mind. So we call this the manipulation of the algorithms. A customer user-friendly algorithm. When I, when I type search, I want what I'm looking for. I don't want Google to politically manipulate me. I don't want Google to commercially manipulate me by sneaking ads into the algorithm. And there's also a third force here. We can leave that shortly at the end. That's conforming me as well. And that's what academia is trying to do with us. Academia today is trying to conform us all to think alike. That's why academia is obsessed with diversity but what they mean when they talk about diversity is a diversity of looks. Not a diversity of opinion, not a diversity of talent. Those are the real diversities. The diversity of opinion thrives in a comp company because you have a lot of different ideas, you make better products. A diversity of talents is also great for a company because then you build better products because you get different talents and you can build the product. If you want to have the best possible product or service, you need a diversity of talents, diversity of opinions in the workplace. But you don't need a diversity of looks necessarily. So a diversity of looks could be a diversity of opinions and talents, but it's not guaranteed. So what's happening is that academia is pressing us by pushing these diversity offices into corporations to have a diversity of looks. We call this the Benettonization. <laughs> it's from an Italian fashion brand called Benetton that used to have fashion commercials in the 1980s that were playful, and they have kids of different skin colors in these commercials, and it was fun, and you wanted to wear their clothes. The joke isn't funny any longer, because I think undeservedly people who look different or have a different background than others actually then are quoted, they used on quotas thrown into the companies. They're never trusted because of their expertise. They never trusted because of the real talents. And we're then creating a sort of political minefield inside technology companies that does no service to anybody. The real diversity is gone and it's simply symbolic diversity we're, we're, we're concentrating on. And this is only because academia could come up with nothing better that they would do when they would do the internet and have careers in tech companies. How, you kind of mentioned a little bit about a minefield there. How have we gotten to the place where I mean, you're able to speak fluidly about this. I, I don't have enough experience here to speak fluidly, but you have, you're fluid and you're a lot of confidence. I, when I tend to go to speak, I tend to pull up a map of the minefield 
And like, how do I dance around this to hit my point, but also not get people up in arms and, and, and frustrate a lot of people? How have you achieved sort of like this clarity of being able to talk about it? Do you, do you spend a lot of time thinking about it? Like as, as a philosopher, is that how you've gotten there? Yes, I do. I, I, I've read <laughs> thousands yeah. of books. And my co-writer, Jan Sedekvist, who I work with all the time, he, he's also read thousands of books. That's what you do. And you read the books to get a sense of history, which is the timeless aspect of your work. But then you must also be fascinated with the world you live in. And that's technology. That's all the tech magazines that's getting involved in the tech industry, that's working for tech companies, that's constantly going to new places and being curious about, oh, how do you do things here in South Korea? Wow, you do it this way? Oh, how do you do crypto here in Panama? You know, it's just like you travel around the world, which I do constantly, and you get invited to all these environments and you're just grateful for every day you wake up because your curiosity never stops. That's how you do it. And, and to go back to the algorithms here, why that has become like a mission is that I know that every customer, every user of the internet out there, when you explain to them what it means to have an algorithm and to be a person of the future, that's what this is. Digital has come from the future. It is now arriving. We can ask digital what it's like, how it's going to affect our lives, how is AI going to affect our lives. You know, We can try to figure this out. But then as always historically, there are always losers when you have dramatic technological changes. So we call this a paradigm shift. And then we need to very clearly identify what is the old paradigm, who used to have power, say, 30 years ago. What well, was politics? Politics is way less important now than it was 30 years ago. It used to be advertising and, you know, the old commercial industry as we knew it. It's far less powerful than it is now because tech has taken over their world and tech is now dominating. And of course, academia is not what it used to be. I work in India a lot. Nobody goes to universities because they join ed tech companies and they get their certificates through non-fungible tokens. And that's better than Harvard. <laughs> it takes them a year to study what took three years at Harvard. And they're fantastic students. The EdTech revolution is next. It's going to kill universities. It's the same digitalization we see everywhere else in society. Somebody comes along with a tech solution. That's number one, it's a solution to a problem nobody thought could be solved. Then it turns out that behind that solution, you could also solve all the old problems quicker and better and cheaper. And three, you can do that in a more comfortable way. You can just have your laptop live anywhere you like in the world and do the work from your laptop. That means you kill the old systems. So I always like to take people back to, say, Paris in 1789, because at least you've heard about the French Revolution. In America, yeah, because you had a fantastic American Revolution at the same time. But if you recall the French Revolution, the new was in the streets of Paris. You know, the people in the streets of Paris, they might be shabby, they lived in small apartments, they were urban, you know, but they could read and write and count. And what they went up against was the old nobility in Versailles, who were a decadent nobility of, say, 40,000 people who were just having these posh parties where they were obsessed with etiquette and tonality and all these kind of superficial things. But the real problem was that the people in Versailles, the old nobility, couldn't read, write, and count. So they had no tabloids where they could read every day what was going on in Paris. They just had rumors. They had no encyclopedias where they could study the entire history of mankind and learn from A to Z about everything, including going to the letter G and finding out what a guillotine is. So if you were in the streets of Paris, you built yourself your own guillotine. You pulled the guillotine out of Versailles. You said, listen, you 40,000 guys are standing in the way. 
you're the old nobility, and because you've opposed us aggressively, and we are the new, we're going to kill you. And they did. And if you were sitting in Paris reading the tabloids about the decadence of Versailles in 1789, you'd probably joined in. It's perfectly understandable. Now, we're probably not going to kill the old institutions by literally killing people. Hopefully not. But we have to get rid of them. And we have to replace these old institutions with a new sort of technology-driven solutions from digital. And in that case, we're only very premature. We only have big tech so far. We have the collection and processing of data. It creates wonderful new values for humanity. We know it's going to change the world. But we also have to have what's called the sensocracy, and we have to have what's called the protopian attitude. I can go into that if you like. You can read the books. But, but we're, on, we're only having the first of three what we call netocracies. These are the new elites that will come out of digital, will take over the world, and then hopefully try to distribute the magic that they create to everybody. That's how so that's the paradigm where, that's works. That's where we're at right now. These new, yeah. what do we call them? New what? Netocracies. Netocracies. Our first book 22 years ago was called The Netocrats. And that's where we started studying using Nietzsche and Marx, actually. Nietzsche and Marx. We used these old guys to describe what could a new nobility look like that was thriving on digital. And of course we described, you know, Silicon Valley to begin with. Um, I went to Burning Man and discovered that Burning Man was located between Silicon Valley and Las Vegas. It was a cultural expression of the Silicon Valley revolution. It was absolutely obvious when you came from the outside and saw it and enjoyed it. And you realized, okay, then participatory culture is the new form of art. It's going to kill the galleries with white walls, and it does today. Then you realize participatory culture is the new spirituality. It's a new form of religion. Then we wrote a book about that. The next year, I was welcomed to the Burning Man World Conference to give a speech. And everybody was crying when I declared, what you guys are doing here in the desert, 70,000 people, is actually deeply spiritual. And now Burning Man has more than 250 uh, children around the world. There are burns everywhere around the world where young people meet and artistically and creatively express themselves through new technologies. And it's fantastic. So we, what we haven't seen yet is what will replace politics and what will replace academia. But we're seeing how that's being built. And, and the most difficult one that we're working with as philosophers at the moment is what will replace politics. Because the Chinese certainly have a very clear idea what that would be. They're creating what's called a sensocracy with only one guy at the top. Sensocracy comes from sensors interconnected with our senses. Your eyes, your ears, your skin, your senses are connected now with machines everywhere. Literally. There are cameras and microphones and satellites everywhere. So the sensocracy is unavoidable. And what we're trying to do now is to rethink the U.S. Constitution, rethink the French Revolution, to respond to the Chinese and construct a philosophy which you can build the sensocracy, which is not a police state, that has all the advantages of what the Chinese are trying to do, but none of the disadvantages. And here, of course, as philosophers, we work closely with governments in countries like Taiwan, South Korea, India, the ones that see the Chinese experiment firsthand, they're sitting front row and they don't want that. They don't want that. But they want to use the technology to now try to figure out quickly where are the advantages, where are the disadvantages of sort of an AI-driven political system, which will replace politics as we know it. And the reason why sensocracy will happen is simple. Why would you vote every four years when you literally vote every second in your life through your behaviors? 
The AI will be absolutely superior to figure out what you want politically compared to any politician who's just guessing. Uh, the scary thing is that if we don't think about this properly before it happens, the Chinese will be ahead of us and people will think that their system is the only one that's valid. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic work to be doing. Incredibly rewarding. So this, so what we're saying is that the evolution of technology will create this sensocracy. Is that how you say it? Yeah, sensocracy. Uh, yeah, sensocracy. Like census sensocracy. Yeah. Yes. And so, like China's doing with that, and that's essentially the consolidation of sensors with your senses up at the top with one person. And exactly. so, like that's the natural evolution. And so, what we're trying to do as the rest of the world is sort of come up with a different framework, different philosophy, a different way of thinking about how to deal with what happens when the technology naturally leads there that's more open and free. But at the same time, we're fighting like other battles too um, within our countries. What country are you like currently spending the most time in or citizen of? I'm constantly traveling and I live in a small country called Sweden and I work in a country yeah. called Slovenia. I love okay. small countries <laughs> because in small countries you can have an effect very quickly. I love Singapore, Dubai, I love Puerto Rico and Panama when I go to the Americas, you know, because in smaller countries, you can have an effect. You can try ideas early. You can also then know if they're wrong. You have a more scientific approach to the whole thing. But I would say that the most important work I'm doing at the moment is that I am established now. So having worked with tech for 30 years, I am now seeing a lot of these guys are successful in big tech. And what I'm fostering them basically to do is that you are successful. You made the money. Now it's time for you to pay back. And that's why I work with philanthropy, because what happens is that when you go from the sort of industrial mode over to, say, the political mode, you need to first talk to these guys and turn them into philanthropists. So I work for something called Norgen Foundation. We're here in Scandinavia. We do all kinds of things. They're, you know, car battery factories, uh, uh, stem cells. Um, most of all, what I'm interested in is psychedelic research. We have all companies set up for that, which is like academic first class medical research on psychedelics. Uh, and they're all thrilled about this. But the most important thing they will have to do eventually is that we're going to have an army of big tech philanthropists to say, well, we made it, but now we just give our resources away for people then construct an open and free sensocracy. And I think the name for that is free and open sensocracy. And the first thing they then must do is to provide customers and users with a free and open algorithm and start stop manipulating and, and, and corrupting the algorithms for us so that we can all have an algorithm that reflects us. And I tell you what people really want. They really want the free and open algorithm. They want an algorithm that reflect them, that reflect their tribe, that reflect their preferences, but they also want to be surprised because if you're never surprised, you get stupid. You can explain that to a 90 year old in five minutes. And that principle is another important principle called antagony, the antagonic principle. So it is that, for example, <coughs> if you work with Spotify, you got a playlist and then you ask a Spotify user, what would you say if every 10th song is just randomly picked from somewhere and surprises you? And you know what? People love it because they know that's like an insurance against their playlist becoming old and boring and tedious and predictable. So it's not like, we know you will probably like this song, so here's another song. It's more like, you'll probably not like this song, but why don't we throw it in there anyway, see how you react to it. And that's called antagonism. This antagonic principle is the principle that the Chinese hate. What about an algorithm where the only thing that irritates you is just other human beings in your society who probably disagree with you? And that people love. It turns out it's very human. And that's you create both resilience and you create intelligence. 
That's you create collective intelligence. Any 19-year-old can understand that if I occasionally am confronted with something I'm, I'm comfortable with, I will grow and expand as a human being. That's the message. So is there any censorship at all in the in like like we're talking about, you know, Google and their algorithms and they both you know, you've seen different organizations release behind the scene videos where they're injecting their concepts of like ephemeral experiences to modify short-term results based off of like their personal views and all sorts of little different things that that they'll use to modify search results or inject their concepts into those um how like and, and then you're talking about like let's have algorithms that just do what we want them to do without any sort of like extra stuff in there so exactly so the trick is this you cannot have a totally free and open society in that sense because then you get anarchy we'll very soon have people who order guns to kill somebody else and nobody can trace it. That's one of the problems of crypto, for example. So we won't accept that because the loyalty towards other people in our in-group stays tribal. People can go up to say 1,200 to 1,500 people at most and feel loyalty towards everybody in the group and behave as if crime did not exist. As soon as the population is larger, we move towards nations, empires even, you know, millions of people, you must have a police force to internally control the population. You must have a military to also defend the population from outside threats. This is called membranics, how you try to define these things. You know, membranes are everywhere. They're in machines, they're in animals, they're in human beings everywhere. So it's about in and out. And, and we always check with people, where are you comfortable having a membrane? And it turns out that the innermost membrane is the family. Then comes the clan, then comes the tribe. Once you go outside the tribe and you go towards a society as a whole or a nation or a city, it will no longer hold. You need a police, right? Once you've discovered that, and that's been historically, you've, you can validify that so it's been the case for 5,000 years, it doesn't really change. Then, okay, that's where loyalty sort of wears thin. What you do then is to work with blockchains, which are fantastic in creating loyalty between strangers. And eventually in the future, maybe we have a society where thousands of people can actually trust each other, and then you can have less policing. But I, I, I am one of these guys who said anarchy could be possible in the future, but it's not possible now. Because human beings cannot handle it, and we don't have technologies to make it work. So what you do instead is they say have some kind of policing. Then I think what's absolutely vital today is that people are terrified of the eerie sense when they go online that somebody's controlling them without telling them. I hate the term nudging. I hate the idea that we should manipulate people to behave in a desired way without telling them. I think that's exactly the wrong way to go. If you say you run Twitter, you should public make public every day that this has been banned, this tweet has been taken off, uh, this guy has been banned for good or whatever because they didn't follow the rules that we set up. Say you run a dinner party. You invite a lot of people. You don't invite anybody to come to your dinner party. And if somebody brings a guest, of course, you still have this last position where you can actually throw them out. You can just say, I'm the dinner party host. I warned you, but your behavior at this dinner party is unacceptable and you're not going to destroy my party, so you have to go. That is censorship. That's the good censorship because it keeps a really good dinner party going. And it's just deeply human. And it's when you look at this 
how the brain works, again, looking at the customer, the user, always go to the human beings, right? And how they operate and how tribal works for them. You can work with a lot of tribal formats, but as soon as you go to larger formats and that, you must have some kind of policing in force. It, we call it good moderation. And I think we need to train people to be good moderators. They, they should get paid to do it. And I think the best forums online in the future will have really solid good moderators, like good patriarchs and matriarchs who've been around for a long time. And just like outside the old bazaar in Persia, you have the oldest woman sitting there. You can't fool her. You come up to her and say, well, come all the way from Sudan with some carpets. And she goes, those carpets from Sudan? Are you kidding me? They're from next door. They're carpets. I won't let you go in. Next guy, please. Right? That's that's moderation. And we need it. Right now, a lot of our moderators are like interns. <laughs> <laughs> Get old women to do it because Let's you do it, do it yeah. because, yeah, it's, it's like training for them to do it. I think that's the wrong way. I know Facebook, for example, I, I almost cried when I saw that they employed teenagers in Ireland to, to po do policing in countries where nobody spoke English. It's like, why? Well, it's a low-pay job. Why is that a low-pay job when that should be the highest-paid job at Facebook? Because at the end of the day, the curator of an art gallery today is better paid than the artists because the value of the whole art show is down to the exquisite talent and fingerspitzgefühl of the curator. I wrote about this 25 years ago and said the curators will rule the world eventually and the highest paid job in any organization should be the moderator. It will pay off if you invest in it. I can assure you that because we're all dying to get out of Facebook forums and these terribly run uh, places full of trolls and trash. We want to get away from that. We want to go into the quality arguments. Uh, personally, I run mailing lists. That's a great way, but I don't start a mailing list. I have some really professional administrators who run it first. So how would you, like when, we, when we're talking about like Twitter and censorship, right? Um, from what I gather, your general area is like better censors, right? Like yeah. more intelligent I censors. always say pick, pick the tough to us love for the group. So take the tough, tough of the candidates who want to be moderators, yeah. but make sure the tough loves the group and the theme and takes a personal interest in it. That's the best moderator you can possibly have. So let's say we have that moderator at Twitter um, and they're moderating all of Twitter globally. Uh, so are they imposing their views globally as the, how does that work? No, I, I think I, I wouldn't do that with Twitter today. I wouldn't do that with Facebook today. Twitter and okay. Facebook have gone for the model of try to make as many, many people as possible members of our, our forum, right? So Twitter and Facebook serve rather as a sort of generally open square. But okay. the power will not be in the square. The power will be in the closed room of an elite. It always is. And this is what we call the notocracy. So I if you want to talk to say you want to talk to Peter Thiel, he's not gonna, you know, meet you on Twitter, is he? So you're the context for that now now I'm kind of catching up to you. Your your talk track was going more towards like this is how we deal with a network that's appropriately sized with the correct people. Not yeah. this is how we fix the existing massive mono networks that are imposing their culture on the entire group at once. No, because Facebook and Twitter will be underclass phenomena anyway. The elite won't okay. be there. They'll stay for Twitter a bit longer, but they're out of Instagram, they're out of WhatsApp, they're out of Facebook already. 
That's just underclass phenomena. That's just time pass industry to try to be some kind of user content entertainment, nothing else. There's no quality left there. If, if you want to be sort of a serious student or something today or be an expert on something, you don't go to those places to find out anything. Wikipedia, though, which is actually a communist project, which makes it quite interesting, um, works wonderfully. And, and it's, it's methods built on Wikipedia are much better methods because you actually pick out an elite you, by, through hard work. People establish themselves and become Wikipedians. And, and through, through, by following the rules again and again and again, they get rewarded for it. They get a credibility. It's like, if you're a Wikipedian and you get to edit the page on Israel versus Palestine, you're at the top of the heap at Wikipedia. And that's a culture. And it's fantastic because it was the hard work that made Wikipedia work. That's why I like products like Wikipedia and Burning Man. They're duocracies. You need to invest hard work into the system to actually make it work. The same thing with crypto and blockchains. You need to put tons of energy into it, whether you like it or not, to make it work. Once you have to make an effort to make something work, all the lazy guys will leave and you will have an upper class phenomenon instead. But I think we're going to have very, very advanced networks very soon. They're going to be called conspiracies because conspiracy network is actually the same thing. And we talked about the network society for the past 30 years. I don't think we have the conspiracies yet. People want them to exist because they love conspiracies. They love ghosts. They love spirits and all kinds of things. But we will have conspiracies. We'll definitely have conspiracies. And this is the crucial question. Will there be just one conspiracy that rules the world, which is the Chinese model, or will we have several competing conspiracies, which is the basis of the US Constitution? And that, I think, is definitely preferable. That's yes. the most important question right now. So can we look at the Twitters and the Facebooks as institutions that will eventually be abolished by future better technologies? I think we'll have them there. I think the AI will always go out looking for talents. So like Twitter, Facebook, that's like talent scouting. It's just like people express themselves through these media if they have access to nothing else. Then you find talents out there and then you pick them up instantly to the major networks. That's why That's we good. will have- That is yeah, good. We, yeah, we will have a meritocracy. The, 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 one of the great dreams of both Paris and, and say America in 1789 was the idea of meritocracy. Meritocracy will happen. The diversity of talents will happen. Uh, the best talents, will, will, they will succeed because the system we're creating with AI will be so good pointing out where you got a human talent that's worth pursuing. And we'll pick them up. That's what venture capital does now. That's what left Silicon mm -hmm. Valley. Venture capital is global today. It doesn't care where you live. You can be a digital nomad, have a great company set up, they will invest in you. And that's a perfect example of how efficient now the networks are at finding and sucking up the talent. So we will all get a chance to prove our talent. Oh, that I, I can guarantee. Emails. That, yeah, I that I can guarantee. Meritocracy will happen. But meritocracy will happen in a very sophisticated way. We will still have a massive class society. There'll be enormous differences in power and influence between people at the bottom, people at the top. And I can teach this to kids. I teach the kids, if you're sitting there doing time pass games all day long, you're a loser. If you sit there and social network with other kids and figure out what they do, you're somewhere in between. If you work, work things out with people that are older than you, who then teach you and mentor you, you're a winner right the, the kids can get this in no they can, in five minutes they get it because that's actually how class structure eventually stabilizes yes T two points one i love that because i've noticed that 
just through not, not necessarily trying to make this happen, but through the questions I've asked in life, I've always ended up being like the youngest person in the room. And (laughs) now, now being older and looking back on it, I was like, okay, I wasn't sitting there with the objective of being the youngest person in the room. I was sitting there with the objective of giving my answers, you know, that I needed from the curiosity that I had. And that's kind of just what ended up happening. Um, but another thing that you said too, is you're exactly right on the venture capital front. I have raised venture capital money and I more recently, uh, I started getting emails over the past year and a half where they will literally be from like venture capital scouts that say, if your PNL meets these three bullet points, then we will give you this much money reply. That's so far different than the what it was five years ago. Now they're just like super transactional. If you meet this reply, we'll validate it and we'll give you this amount of money. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, because they discovered that they don't want to spend too much time going too deeply into your company. They know what they're looking for, so they give you the bullet points. Uh, then they can put AI in doing the details later on or whatever, but they know that if they spend the money wisely on these different products that fulfill these different bullet points, then the market itself will then do the rest of the work. But if you think about what we've done in capitalist society, what is the most precious thing today? It is human beings and their attention. So the question is then, uh, how do people give you their ears and and their eyes and their attention. And how do they stay with it? And that's exactly what algorithms are supposed to measure and nothing else. And that's why I think algorithms and meritocracy, fantastic potential to get when you look at this. And meritocracy will indeed happen. Where can I learn about this whole concept of like networks? I mean, are these just your thoughts or are these larger schools of thought that I can read more into about these networking structures? They are in our books. (laughs) Okay. Can you give me a shout out for your books? What books? Yeah. The first one is called The Netocrats. Um, The second, third one we haven't touched today. The fourth and the fifth one we touched, they're called, the fourth book is called Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age. Because technology is moving in a certain direction. God has never existed, but God will exist one day. Because we will create God if you want God. We're creating guardian angels at the moment. They're called algorithms. We're creating telepathy at the moment. It's called smartphones. You know, the magic of yesterday is the technology of tomorrow. That's what technologists do and do beautifully. They're magicians. They create magic. So uh, that's synthism. And the fifth one is called digital libido. Sex, power, and violence in the network society. And it's really about the mess we're going through at the moment. For example, we predicted the war between Ukraine and Russia. We predicted the war between paradigms. And, and so a lot of that is in the books. So you can read Barton Sodekvist and you can then move from, from the Barton Sodekvist books, you can move into the other fields as well. I will have like follow-up questions. So maybe next year we'll have you back on and I can sort of get, get better questions for you now that I know you a little bit. I would love to, and I can guarantee one thing. You must write at least a chapter in your book on, on how you figured out you could make money from the old capitalist while still running a first-class attentionist talk show. I mean, that's, that yes. alone is a chapter. That, that alone is a book. You know, People are dying to find the magic of those things today. That how do you, when they finally realize, how do I not irritate people? It starts there. Well, well you how said do you not it. irritate like yourself, it. right? How do, you, how, do you, how do you not, well, you have to be entertaining and you have to be informative. The principle for algorithms is simple. It's called infotainment. The one thing we require when we go online is that we either want to be entertained or we want to be learned, educated. And if we're both, we love you. So if you provide some kind of information that is not infotaining, 
you're dead. That's, it's like vitamin that's what gummies. communication must be. Yeah. <laughs> They're vitamins, but they also taste good. Yeah, yeah. I teach, I taught algorithms 20 years ago, how you build them and build them exactly the way they should be built 20 years ago. And it's only after that, the pressure from politics through manipulation and, and the pressure of, of, of corruption from money where the ads didn't get the clicks any longer. So they forced the ads into the algorithms, which is of course corrupting them. And also I saw suddenly academia woke up and they got irritated because the internet was killing them. And they're going to be furious over the next 20 years as long, you know, when the universities start dying, they're going to attack the internet and they're all going to say the same thing that old people always do when youth come and kill them. They're going to say, well, you're immoral, you're fake news, you're fake academia, you're fake politics. Like I always tell my students, I am a very public person in Scandinavia. And I've never written a true word about me in any newspaper ever. So the truth about me was finally kind of discovered when the internet came along. So never trust the news. <laughs> it was always fake. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's funny because that's a hard thing to do. Like when you start asking like questions like what is truth? Right? When people say, my oh, that's not true. My dad told me when I, my dad, he's South African. He, 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 he told me when I was six years old, here are five newspapers every day, son. Here's the communist one. Here's the Pentecost Christian one. Here are the other three ones in between. Read them all five. Then you become smart. <laughs> Once you get the entire perspective, I mean, that's at least four antagonists and your own comfortable view, hopefully. Once you can accept more antagonists into your worldview, your worldview will be expanded. And once you start loving that, once you start loving being constantly challenged and, ex and expanded, that's what love is. That's what love is. It's to feel expanded in the presence of other people. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.